This is Gil Manser welcoming you to Word by Word Conversations with Writers on North Bay Public Media, KRCB-FM in Santa Rosa. Today's show is a reprise of a conversation with the award-winning novelist David Corbett, talking about his very timely coming-of-age novel, Do They Know I'm Running? Although most people know David as the author of the award-winning thrillers he writes with a distinctive voice in The Devil's Redhead, Done for a Dime, and Blood of Paradise, many don't know that he spent 15 years as a private eye in San Francisco, investigating numerous high-profile civil and criminal cases. Our listeners will remember some of David's most highly publicized cases, including the Lincoln Savings and Loan case, the DeLorean trial, the Cotton Club murder case, the People's Temple trial, and the first Michael Jackson molestation case. They also don't know that David is a singer in the mold of the famous rock bottom remainders, those professional writers who can't resist the challenge of coming on stage and singing a song. I met David first at a nightclub in San Francisco where both of us were getting ready to celebrate the 100th birthday of the California Writers Club by singing songs a couple of weeks later with a dozen or so other foolish writers at Book Passage in Corte Madera. Thanks to the event organizer, Patricia V. Davis, snippets of that illustrious afternoon are available on YouTube. But here is David Corbett singing solo and backed up by a male chorus, including a voice familiar to all word-by-word listeners. So, David, are you ready to give up your day job? I was about to say something uh, along the lines of it's definitely a good idea that I don't. <laughs> I, you know, after seeing that on, on the uh, YouTube, I thought, gee, those people who go up for American Idol, I really got to give them, you know, the credit because they're a heck of a lot better seeing it. I pretty sing pretty well in the shower, you know. Well, um, I used to do that professionally, and uh, just listening to that clip, I just realized <laughs> that I was trending flat terribly, and, uh, you know, you need to, there's a, there's a, tactic that you use where you aim for the top of the note, and uh, apparently I was too nervous to remember it. You're supposed to fold your ear over and listen to yourself talking, too, like the old radio Well, you, you can do that, but um, you can't always do it when you're playing an instrument, obviously. You can't do that while you're right. singing, so right. there's other ways to do it, but none of them did I avail myself of in that particular moment, as every na- everyone on your radio program now knows. Right. <laughs> so, tell me, uh, I'm reading your book, and one of the things is that to give the people the idea of the setup, it says on the back, Roque Montalvo is wise beyond his 18 years, orphaned at birth, a gifted musician. He's stuck in a California backwater helping his Salvadoran aunt 
care for his damaged brother, an ex-Marine badly wounded in Iraq. When immigration agents arrest Roque's uncle, the family has nowhere else to turn. Badgered by his street-hardened cousin, he agrees to the old man to bring the old man home, relying on the criminal gangs that control the dangerous smuggling routes from El Salvador through Guatemala and Mexico to the U.S. border. So I read that, and I knew what I was going to get, right? No. To give our listeners a flavor of how David writes, Anthony Garcia and I will read from Do They Know I'm Running's opening pages. It was daybreak, and the rancher standing at his kitchen window watched two silhouettes stagger toward through the desert scrub. One clutched the other, but they both seemed hurt. The porch light, the rancher thought, that's the only thing they've been walking toward all night. See it for miles, all the way from the footpath snaking through the mountains out of Mexico. Rooster lurched at the end of his chain, hackles up that snarl in his bark, trying to warn the strangers off. They just kept coming. All right, then, he thought. Not like you wanted this. He set his coffee in the sink and went to the door leading out to the porch and collected the shotgun he kept there, racked a shell into the chamber, stepped outside. As they came within twenty yards, he saw it stuffed into the man's pants, a pistol. It happened of its own accord then, shotgun raised tight to the shoulder, barrel aimed straight at the armed man's midriff. Alto! Tango un escopeta! Esta es propiedad privada! It was half the Spanish he knew. Stop! I have a shotgun. This is private property. But he might as well have shouted it to the wind. The man just kept coming, one of the women's arms hooked across his shoulder. The other hummed limp at her side. Her steps were ragged. She looked barely conscious. The rancher felt his finger coiled tight around the trigger. I said stop! Alto, damn it! Won't say it again! Next thing I do is shoot. As though rousted from a terrible dream, the stranger glanced up, still shuffling his feet, dragging the woman. From behind, he's barely more than a boy. Stay in the house. The guilt and fear, knowing his wife was right, knowing, too, that he was all that stood between them and her. It quickened into rage, and the impulse quivered down his arm into his hand. Then the young, half-dead stranger with the pistol called out in a dust-dry voice, its words a challenge and a plea and a cry of recognition all in one. Don't shoot! Help us, please! I am an American! The rancher tucked the gun butt tighter into the clenched muscle and aching bone of his shoulder. Don't believe him, he told himself. Don't believe one damn word. go back in time, is that we meet Roque in bed. And next to him is an older woman who's a potter. And they have a, is it a love affair, would you call it? A relationship? A December-June romance, yes. A December-June romance. But he has to get up early because he has things he has to do. Well, he has to, yeah, he has to get back home to take care of his wounded brother. Right. And the brother was wounded? In Iraq. Yes. In the Battle of Fallujah. In many ways. Not just the, the open oozing wound on his leg that has to be have the dressings changed every morning, but his head. Well, his head, and also, uh, importantly for Godo, and that's the brother's name, uh, is his face. Right. The shrapnel has disfigured him so badly, he knows that he was a bit of a ladies' man before he left for the war, and he knows those days are over. In fact, he knows his life as he knew it is over. Mm-hmm. And um, 
All he's carrying now is the guilt of what he believes to be a misjudgment on his part that mm-hmm. led to the death of a man he very much admired and revered. And anger. Yes, plenty of anger. Right. And he kind of numbs the pain, both physical and, and emotional, with Percocet and a few other prescription drugs. And the handy six-pack. And the very handy six-pack, or maybe a, a fifth of something. So this is the uh, the brother that Roque returns to, to to help. And while he's there, what happens? Well, when he goes back, the uh, the window is broken. I'm not sure why. The uh, Their aunt screams in front of the trailer where they live. And then he sees two ICE agents, Immigration and uh, Customs uh, Enforcement. And um, they're there to apprehend a cousin mm-hmm. uh, who was actually deported and who the ICE agents believe has re-entered the country. And uh, it results in a standoff. And his name, because that's going to be important. Oh, his, his name is, is Pablo, but everybody calls him Happy right. because he's never happy. That's one of those, the ironies of street handles. And, um, but Godo, you know, being a man who defends his family mm-hmm. and uh, not trusting these two intruders and also just being a volcano ready to blow at any instant anyway and seeing these two armed men to enter his, his domain. Right. Takes up his shotgun and it gets into a standoff with him. Very similar to the scene we've already seen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The assumptions on both sides. Well, the assumptions on both sides are that, you know, these people are dangerous. They cannot be trusted. Right. But Roque's an interesting character uh, because he's not your typical um, person from the family. He's exceptional in the family. He's, he's the golden child. He's the golden child. He's the yeah. talented one. He picked up a guitar and has not looked back in that sense ever since. He's, you know, the, the Santana of uh, his neighborhood. Well, he's, he's, his teacher has actually deemed him, you know, perhaps the next Carlos Santana. Right. And so um, there's a certain expectation and also a certain pride in that. Mm-hmm. And those, those two burdens, the whole notion that, yes, he knows he's gifted, but also, you know, what will that mean? How far will it take him is mm-hmm. something that, that haunts him. Well, for one thing, the, where is the money going to come from? Because he's not really making much yet as a musician. Oh, he's not doing—well, no. Of yeah. course, musicians make next to nothing. And, you <laughs> know, this, and the family, because his aunt has, um, has favored this talent, mm-hmm. he has not been required to work. She instead has worked harder, and his uncle uh, has also worked harder to provide him the space he needs to be right. able to perfect his right. gift. And the uncle does what? The uncle is a pork truck driver. Right. And I got introduced to this breed of cat um, through my last book. My last book took place in El Salvador, and it was dedicated to a Salvadoran, uh, a Salvadoran American uh, organizer right. with the Teamsters who was murdered in 2004. And his name was Gilberto Soto. And um, his uh, boss within the Teamsters was very grateful for this dedication and has actually shared the book with numerous people, including President Funes of El Salvador mm-hmm. and Representative Jim McGovern of Massachusetts, and um, and also human rights and labor rights leaders all over the world. It's it's really been rather humbling uh, his dedication to the book and Title he really of this believed book? in it. This, no, that was Blood of Paradise, my right. last book. Right. And um, and but as part of the research of this, he introduced me to men who actually do work at the ports, and they do the drayage runs. They pick up the canisters from the that come off the ships, and deliver them to the warehouses. Mm-hmm. And I learned just one how hard a job it is, and two how low paying a job it is. They're and paid a hundred dollars a load, and then they have to stand in line for four to six hours waiting for the next load. Exactly. Et cetera, et cetera. They weigh it in a like the line of taxi cabs at the airport. Exactly. 
Now, the other part that makes this even much more complicated, well, in, in the, it's funny because in a couple or three pages, you managed to give us all these kinds of insights to what it means to be a, a trucker, how to, you know, pay the insurance this month so that you can put off paying for the, you know, the expensive cost of, of the truck or buying new tires or whatever, and whether the truck, the trailer, what do we call it, a, a cab or a tractor? Or the chassis, or the, yeah. or the, the, the carriage on behind. Yeah. yeah. Is, is owned sometimes, most often, by someone else. So you exactly. don't have control over, shall we say, the safety aspects of it. You that. really don't. And, and whenever there's a trucking accident, um, you almost find that the focus is almost always on the trucker, but the root causes of the problem are almost always with the shipping company. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, this is something I heard over and over again from drivers. Right. And, and, and a lot of these loads are very top-heavy, mm-hmm. and yet um, they're told to just take the load, you know, don't ask questions. Um, otherwise, they lose an entire day, right. and it's um, and so that it's often a gamble when they step off those, they drive off those lots, on whether they're going to be able to make it or not. Avocados, tile, um, anything goats. that can. Um, well, goats. That's another. There's a uh, episode in the in the uh, that takes right place in Sonoma, for right some here reason. in Sonoma yeah. County, where some uh, a load of goats. I actually uh, researched that incident. That actually happened uh, about 15 years ago, I believe. So, can you read us that section with the truck driver uncle waiting in line at the port of Oakland? You took your chances. Tickets for weight could cost you 10 grand. Worse, if the load wasn't just heavy but stacked too high, might not even clear the truck yard before the thing went over on you. Spend the rest of the day dealing with cops and the port people, all that paperwork, or worse. Trucker in Florida pulling a reefer load crushed a young model when his rig flipped, trying to dodge a wreck. Another guy right here in Oakland found out the chassis of the yard crew, excuse me, Found out the chassis the yard crew gave him had shot brakes. Same deal. Swerved to miss a pileup. The thing went over on him. Pancaked a Saturn wagon. Whole family inside. And of course, they always blamed the drivers, never the shippers. Everybody had a story like that, or knew someone who did. Faustino's involved a load of goats. He was carrying them to Guerneville, where they were going to be used to clear brush. 400 animals in all stacked tight on tiered shelving in the trailer to keep them from moving around, hurting themselves en route. None of them were more than two years old, babies almost. Faustino petted a few before closing up the back, heading out. Right outside Sonoma, he blew out a tire on a tight turn. The rig belonged to the company, not him. He'd pointed out the wear, but they'd said it was fine. Go, drive. The cab nosed down with the blowout. The load shifted. The trailer went with it. Some of the goats got crushed by the shelving. Others scrambled three through the back door that busted open in the crash. Dozens of them, roaming around wine country, chewing up anything they could find. When the cops arrived, they closed the trailer up again. Faustino tried to tell them, no, don't, the animals will suffocate. But they ignored him. The rest of the goats died, the ones on top smothering the ones below. Their screaming was terrible to hear. The woman who ran the company called to the scene, watched Animal Rescue pulling out one carcass after the other, bodies twisted, bloody, limp. They were stacked five deep along the roadbed like cordwood. She came to the patrol car where Faustino sat in the back seat and just stared for a moment, then broke down, cursing him. Eight years ago that happened, Faustino thought. He still winced at the memory. Someone started banging on his driver's side door, Glancing down, Faustino recognized one of the men from the circle who'd been yabbering all this time. McBee, that was his name. Better run, amigo. He pointed back toward Maritime Street. 
Checking his rear view, Faustino saw the whirling lights, the unmarked sedans speeding forward. They'd blocked the end of the cul-de-sac as well. There was no way out except on foot. A low-rising green lay between him and the inlet with sapling elms and small tussocks of beach grass lining the walkway, but it offered nothing like a hiding place. Could he swim across the channel to the next berth over? Would he be any safer if he did? The rosary and San Cristobal medallion hung there from his mirror, helpless. Forget the truck, Faustino. We'll get it to you somehow. Leave the keys. Run. And he does. But he's still caught and sent back to El Salvador. That's true. Right. Which is what basically we talked about the story at the beginning that's on the book jacket. And as you can see, it's already it's much more complex than that. And the, as we were talking in the parking lot today when, when I and you came here, I pointed out that this was a much more complex and multi-layered and intricately woven together story than I expected it to be because it's not just the people who are in the family. And the family is commu- confused because some are related by blood and others by you know, because they've lived in close proximity or they came from the same village or some other kind of relationship or they were in the same gang. And so family is kind of a, a fluid, shall we say. Well, but, you also, and you also have the phenomena of what they call mixed status, where within every family there's somebody who's a citizen, there's somebody mm-hmm. who's legal, and there's somebody who's undocumented. Right, just by accident often, right. because whether they were born, happened to be born on this side of the border or the other side of the border or whatever else the, the reason might be. Exactly. So, but uh, Uncle Faustino, uh, Uncle Tino is definitely undocumented. Yes. And he's been here for what, eight years? No, he's been here for almost 20. Almost but, 20 years. Um, this, this incident, what sometimes you can't put in the book everything that you want to be able to put into it. Cause but you've got a backstory. He has you, a backstory sure. for him where this incident was close to when he was getting his naturalization papers, but mm-hmm. he was being hung out to dry. And if he stayed, um, he was going to be the subject of lawsuits that would basically bankrupt him and his family. Mm-hmm. So he fled so he couldn't be served. Right. And then came back illegally. So now, of course, he's undocumented. Gotcha. So the interesting thing is that that's – with the other man we've talked about is uh, Godo, who's the, the one who's been injured in, in the Marine. Iraq. Yes. The Marine. And uh, why he joined up is just as complicated a story. Now, how, he's, he's the nephew of – Tino? Yes. Yes. And the brother Tino. And the brother Roque. Right. Right. But let's read, if you can, I I hope I'm not making you do this too much, but um, here we go. We're starting in a car, and Happy, who we we mentioned earlier, who has a different name, but everybody calls him Happy because he's not, and uh, Godo are getting into a fight, and they're driving as this happens. Right. They're driving away from a party where Goto met a girl that he's was quite enamored with. Mm-hmm. And Happy, as always, didn't mingle terribly well and is a bit sullen. But but Goto is, is too drunk to drive, so Happy is driving. And they've gotten into this argument about the girl and about women in general. And uh, so Goto threw a punch. Happy dodged the blow, pivoting away. The wheel went with him. The car veered across the double line, then whipped into a spin as Happy overcorrected. An oncoming pickup veered to miss them, screech of tires, angry honk. They stalled out, straddling the center divide. Lucky, for a few seconds anyway. A cop, lurking on a side street, maybe 300 yards down, saw the whole thing. Not that the two of them noticed, 
They were back at it, wild, drunken haymakers landing, one in every five tries, but coming fast and hard regardless, only stopping when the cop hit his strobe. They froze. The red light swirled. Happy whispered, It's Deutschengado. I'm screwed. He bolted, throwing open the door, leaping from the car, charging down the gravel roadside berm through weeds to the riverbank, hunting a way to cross. The cop spotted him, a voice calling through the squad car's loudspeaker for him to stop, and the headlights now square on Goto, sitting there, too stupid from liquor and weed to toss the ounce stashed under the seat. It would all play out like a tedious movie from there, the backup units blocking off the road, the chopper with its searchlight, the dogs. Goto would remember the back and forth at the window, the officer with the steel-gray crew cut, very professional, very polite. I'd like to know if you'll agree to a search of the vehicle. By that point, Goto was a fatalist. What would happen would happen. I can get a warrant, just a matter of time. I detect a distinct odor of marijuana. Your pupils are dilated. Your companion fled the scene. You were observed driving erratically. I wasn't driving. You have gang tattoos. That made Goto laugh. He looked at the backs of his hands, a dragon, a bat. These? The cop leaned closer. Let me explain something to you, son. Here's how it will go. I'm a decorated officer with 12 years' experience working this city, with expertise of particular relevance to the matter at hand. Numerous multi-agency task forces, narcotics unit, youth gang outreach. Am I getting through? The two cops behind him grinned like jackals. I say those are gang tats. Think any judge in this county is going to second-guess me? Goda's eyes burned. Fearing he might cry, he bit his lip, telling himself, don't be a bitch. I don't care, he whispered. The cop accepted this remark with an oddly warm smile. Thank you. That's consent. Please step outside the vehicle. Goto watched as they tossed the car, thinking, slime. They found the pot, but nothing else worth bagging and tagging. No open containers, no crank, no weapons. Half an hour later, the dogs cornered Happy out among the sloughs on the river's far side, hiding in a patch of oleander. He and Goto were taken to lock up in separate cars. I'll never see him again, Goto realized. The weed was a California misdemeanor, no more than a fine for him. His bigger problem would be public intoxication, and even that was just another minor beef, a lecture from the bench, community service, counseling. But for Happy, the pot was an aggravated felony. No matter what any lawyer tried to do, no matter what Goto said under penalty of perjury, the pot was his, no one else's. He'd paid for it, hidden it under the seat. None of it mattered. Happy wasn't a citizen. His case was heard in immigration court, and he drew a hanging judge. Not only did he get deported, he was barred from reentry for the rest of his life. Exile for an ounce bag of Godot's bud. It took only one time, looking into Tio Faustino's eyes, for Godot to realize there was no other option. He had to go away, someplace strange and terrible. If he came back, he had to come back changed. And so he headed to the small featureless office downtown where the man in the olive green pants, the khaki shirt and tie, the famous high and tight buzz cut, sat behind his simple desk, stars and stripes on one side, Marine Corps colors on the other. I just got popped on a weed charge, Godo said. That going to be a problem? Hmm. Well, in that excerpt, 
so many things are going on. For one thing, you see the why and how Godo got where he was, how happy gets where he is, how this all was set up from that really that one night, because both of those young men's lives changed so dramatically then. Right. They both have experience in Iraq, uh, which is the the backstory really, if you will, of this whole book. And how happy ends up in Iraq is a rather it's long, a very convoluted, convoluted story. Yeah, but, but it but it sets up the. Um, the working with, uh, you know, the federal people in all different levels to, to try to get uh, the uncle to come back and be pardoned and become a citizen. Right. And the other members of the family become citizens. Ha- so, Happy thinks he has a plan that will make everything work out right. right. And right. like a great many plans. It's very complicated. It's complicated and it doesn't quite come out the way he thought. Right. Now let's talk about the tattoos on the hands because I used to work with uh, the gangs in, in – uh, Pico Union section of Los Angeles, mm-hmm. and um, tattoos were were different then. You know, that's a long time ago now. So, right. what what's going on with them now? What do they mean? Well, that well, they all can. Uh, it will depend on on the clique that mm-hmm. has the, the various tattoos. They'll all have their own little symbols and their own little the know, gang. meanings. The gangs yeah. will. But these are just you know for Godo, these are just symbols that he's put on his hand. You know, right. the, the dragon and the bat. They're right. they're more like personal. So they, they really don't symbolize anything gang-related, and that's what he's trying to get across to the cop. And the cop's mm-hmm. get, trying to get across to him, look, kid, it doesn't, doesn't matter. doesn't matter. It's a tattoo. It'll be Yeah, you know, it's what I say it is. Yeah. Yeah. So we have another man with very a tremendous number of tattoos who's important later. He comes in as the convincer that the feds bring in undercover. Oh, yes. And uh, I'd like you to read a little bit about his tattoos if we can. Okay. Sure. Um, 38. Because he has, he's sort of like uh, the Yakuza. He has tattoos everywhere except uh, where he's had them removed from, where you know, outside his shirt. He had them removed from his face, yes. Right. So that, uh, um, but they're still it would not be as still slightly there, right? And his name is Zipikana. Right. Zipikana pulled a slip of paper from his pocket and handed it to Vasco. Happy recognized it. The list of Banco de Cusco, um, excuse me, Banco de Cuscutlan account numbers passed along from Lonely in El Salvador for wire transfer of the 30000 Divvy it up any way you want, Zipicana said. Not all the same amount, though. Don't be stupid. And make sure it gets done today. Vasco tucked the paper into his breast pocket. How soon till we get a shipment? A month, maybe six weeks. Vasco's eyebrows levitated. Six weeks? Why the f***? That's nothing you need to know. Like hell it ain't. I'm out 30 grand till then. Zipikana grinned, his eyes more cold than mocking. What? You want interest? I'm putting my ass out in the wind here. Happy vouches for me. Who vouches for you? Listen to you. It was Nico leaning back in his chair while Zipikana rose to his feet with a stagey air of menace. He doffed his suit jacket, then began unbuttoning the silver shirt, cuffs first, then the collar, then on down. Who vouches for me? He stripped the shirt off with a flourish, then lifted his welterweight arms, turning slowly to display the tattoos no laser had touched, his torso a billboard. A spiderweb covered his left shoulder, a black widow dangling on a thread, the number 13 on its back in a red hourglass, while from below a devil's claw emerged from flames to clutch his heart. Two masks appeared on his right shoulder, one happy, one sad. Smile now, cry later with fist-sized letters and numerals in chain work down the side of his chest, M.S. 1, 3. 
the name Mara Salvatrucha scrolled in a vine down one arm, while down the other you could read amid florid decoration, Sleep with the maggots, nor putos. On his back, across his shoulders, in finely detailed Gothic lettering, Trece por vida, dieciocho son putas. A black billiard ball with a thirteen in the white circle bore and the added inscription, Rest in piss, hotos. Then, in the small of his back, a graveyard of headstones, each bearing the name of a dead chamaco. Skinny, gato, slayer, pincho, dreamer, erculiche, vampi, pingue, soro. Happy glanced over at Vasco, engaged from his expression that he was thinking, who vouches for this guy? The madhouse, the street, the devil. Let me tell you something, Zipicana said, reaching for his shirt. We don't need you, am I right? Well, we got to sell, we can find a buyer, no problem. And whoever steps up, he gets more than 500 kilos and a bunch of bananas. He gets the crown, understand? So what you want to ask yourself, he slipped on this shimmery silk shirt, fussed the collar into place, is this. Do I want to rule or be ruled? Who do I want for partners? Who do I want for enemies? Because the storm is coming, Chero. You want to be ahead of it, not behind it. Aha. Okay, so tell me, we were talking about tattoos. What is your experience? <clears throat> Did you get involved with any situations when you were working as a private eye or since that uh, gave you insight? Well, some of this is research that I've done since I was, I was a private investigator, but right. we did some. Um, we did a, a case involving the Norteños. Mm-hmm. There was a, a large conspiracy case that we were part of the defense on that I worked with. Mm-hmm. So, uh, And the I, number 13, for those of our listeners who may not know what that means. Oh, that's, well, number 13 uh, stands for the letter M. And um, that is one for El M.A. is sometimes used, but it's also for Mara Salvatrucha, which is a Salvadoran gang based right. in Los Angeles. Right. And um, the number 14 is the letter N, so, uh, and that's Norteños, and they are basically the, uh, the enemies of both uh, El M.A. and uh, Mara Salvatrucha. Mm-hmm. Okay. All, well, which is important to know. Yes. Now, this is all going happening north of the border. But mm-hmm. south of the border at the same time, um, Roque has gone down there to find his uncle. Right. And uh, the people who are helping him want a certain amount of money, $30,000? Yes. And um, they also want some more because they hear Roque comes with a, a reputation. Yes. And it's really interesting what happens is what do they want from this young man? Is they are making a what? Oh, they're making a YouTube video right. of their click. Right. And they want some? Uh, they, they, want, they want a decent uh, backup track because, right. you know, it's all about pride. And they've got this, you know, this pollo here who, uh, you know, he owes them. So, you know what? You're going to do a favor for us. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, make it sound good or, or I don't know. We'll, we'll decide from there. Yeah. So when he arrives there, there's a young woman whose face has been obviously wearing a bruise from being slapped or worse. Yes. And who's looking terrified. And he doesn't know what she's there for, but he's soon going to find out. Yes. So can we read that part? Absolutely. Okay. We are on uh, Roque and the Music 101. Here we go. Again, start to stop. I think I can manage that. Roque collected the Martin, switched to an open D tuning, adjusted the mic. Just to stop. The Martin being the guitar of that name. Yes. Yes. Excuse me. Yes, it's a Martin guitar. 
Roque collected the Martin, switched to an open D tuning, adjusted the mic down to chair level. His hands were shaking. Get it together, he told himself, as he recued the video. Figuring lonely in his boys for secret sentimentalists, like most punks, he laid on the schmaltzy rubato as he strummed a flamenco-style rhythm track, complete with backhand flourishes and syncopated thumb slaps on the guitar's spruce stop. Gradually, the pulse in his neck stopped throbbing. He followed up with a muted arpeggio pattern on the Strat, echoing the bass line but elaborating on it too, giving it an edge, a little extra momentum. When it came time to solo, he built it in the Dorian mode, like Santana in Evil Ways, the off-kilter minor, jarring at first, then gelling, almost medieval in its eerie drift, but full of bite and heat. After one particularly aching lick, he could sense it, the gravitational turn, every eye and ear in the room drawn to him and him alone, and he finished with a series of slowly ascending arpeggios ending in a scream. Finally, he gestured the girl over again and readjusted the mic stand height. He wanted to ask her name, but knew better. Using the strat, he played the vocal line he wanted her to follow. No words, just nonsense syllables or open vowels. The thing had enough verbiage as is. He let the girl know it would be okay if she improvised a little, even though he'd be echoing her on the guitar. Using the effects pedal, he bought himself a little distortion, a touch of phase delay, some sustain, then recued, then recued the track and said, Listo. She nodded. He counted it off. By now the track seemed full and solid. All that was lacking was the haunting high notes, the skin-tingling wail of the bruja. The girl obliged, getting it instinctively, her voice throaty but pure. He was impressed. The only problem was, at the high end of her range, she trended flat. He tried to get her pitch to lift by echoing her notes on the guitar, a howling whisper tracking her vocal line, but either she'd never had to blend before, meaning she'd never sung harmony, or she was too scared to hear him. Once the track was over, she glanced at him shyly, fingers twined. He bit back a grin at her girlishness and again caught himself staring at her face, the two punctuating moles on her throat. He told her how much he liked her voice, how rich the tone was, how gutty the timber, but he wanted to run through the thing again. This time, he said, visualize the notes in the air like balloons. Aim for the top. Let your voice skim along the upper surface. Understand? She swallowed nervously, nodded. He recued the track, met her eye, counted off. They ended up doing four more takes before she nailed it, pitch and all, at which point Roki couldn't hold back his smile anymore, if only from relief. It had been fear, after all, tightening her voice. Each time he followed her improvisations, the same harsh, keening whisper and echo, riding the sustain, occasionally jumping a fifth or an octave, then settling back in, note for note. The melody spoke of longing, heartbreak, cold regret, which brought a wistful gravitas to the cocksure gangster b It made Marreros look like men, something they'd botched ridiculously on their own. But the really marvelous thing was watching her face change as she sang. She winced on anything above an A, clearly still limited by the bruise and gash on her cheek, maybe other wounds he couldn't see, but her voice turned that pain into something clean and nameless. She knew what it meant to suffer, and not just a crack across the jaw. Her face surrendered to it. Okay, well, you've got a very distinctive, I'm sure people have told you this, a very distinctive voice. When you know when you're reading, it's uh, 
you can hear it in your own head. It's really well done. Thank you. Now, um, I know Alfred Molina, I believe, did uh, the voice for some of your other books and the books on tape. Is that right? Well, they, uh, I was part of two serial thrillers where a different writer wrote a different chapter. Uh-huh. Alfred Molina did those two, yes. Right, right. And uh, does this one coming out on tape? Because this just came out a month ago um, by, let's see, who is it? Who it's Random it? House. Valentine, yeah, Random, Random House. House. Right. Um, Random House owns the audio rights, and uh, what they're doing with them, I have no clue. It'll depend on sales. But because I had worked on these serial thrillers, uh, audible.com mm-hmm. uh, gave me a very good um, offer on the first three books. Right. And so those now are available in audio form. And the are you, you are reading there? No, I'm not reading, actually. They, they, they're very, uh, they, they really do like having um, actors do the reading, uh-huh. so I just, uh, you know, I just defer to that. It's funny, my agent tried to fight for it, and I told her, no, 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 it's no, 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 no. all right. It's all right, I'm uh, fine. So I'll, I'll go with that. They yeah. just, just sign the check. Yeah, right. that was pretty much it. Yeah. So we have, it's interesting, because every person in this is a specialist. I don't know if you thought of that. Have you ever th- Tell us how you put this book together, because as I go on and on with it, I, might, I don't know if I can... I can have our listeners well, it, understand it, how excited I am it is to read this because it, it, it just it, keeps unfolding page after with more and more and more and then layer on top of that and then complexities and you you follow every part of it. There's no difficulty in in the, it at all. Oh, that's great because that's one of the things I fear is that I I do enjoy complexity but not at the expense of clarity. Right. And um, you know I, I always want to make sure that people can follow the story as it goes along. Um, but I also do know that it, with every action we take, there are repercussions and echoes we can never predict. Mm-hmm. And that's why we're so prone to error and, so, and why we, we require forgiveness. Mm-hmm. And that's really, I mean, if, if there's an ethical universe I inhabit, it could be sort of condensed to that, that sort of moral ethos that, you know, they, our inherent propensity to error, the complexities that we cannot see, and therefore our need uh, for forgiveness. Um, I, I just I see that as the human condition, and uh, this book is very much about that. Very definitely. And um, but the idea came when uh, I had, was finishing my last book in 2006, uh, and it took place in El Salvador. So I was pretty attuned to Latin American issues, and the last uh, incarnation of our immigration debate was taking place on cable TV, and I was sort of at times infuriated and other times horrified by some of the things I heard. And at the same time, if you were watching the news, it was, it was in 2006 was when we were having a very serious time in Iraq, and the casualties were very high. And mm-hmm. if you looked at the names coming back among the dead, it was astonishing how many of them were Latino. Mm-hmm. And so I realized, wait a minute, you know, Latinos are putting their lives on the line for this country. At the same time, they're being vilified on, on some of these TV shows. And I did a little research. I found out that, in fact, Latinos were being wounded and killed in combat in higher percentages than their proportion in the services as a whole. And the RAND Corporation did a survey trying to inquire why were Latinos uh, joining up in the military in, in such numbers. And the expectation, the common sense explanation that everybody expected was that they were doing it because the Bush administration, uh, through an executive order, was granting... Um, legal residents, the opportunity, if they join the military for an expedited path to citizenship, it would take less time. It would take like a year. Instead Has that of three. actually happened? Yeah, no, yeah, the Bush administration did put, put that through. But the recruits themselves did not list that. Uh, that was like number five on the list. Mm-hmm. The f- top four reasons they gave for joining up were patriotism, service to country, duty, mm-hmm. and honor. Mm-hmm. And when I was in San Diego, I was on the radio, and a Marine came to my reading. 
and uh, he was born in Honduras. And so he was you know, exactly the type of Marine I'm talking about. And he said he had been a recruiter. And he said one of the things that he heard over and over again from the guys that would join up was they wanted to belong to a larger family. Mm-hmm. Right. This is so their, their bigger gang. Yeah. Really. Well, yeah. Well, yeah. Well, they're, 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 this whole sense of belonging to something right. important. And um, and so these are Which five. Which is why so many become Marines, too. Yeah. yeah well, yeah. also, the, well, and, and, well, there's a, you'll, I've <laughs> you talked to a number grin. of Marines yes. who, uh, who have told me, said, you know, if it weren't for the Marines, I'd probably be in prison right now or dead. Right. And there was something that the Marines offered them that they needed and which turned their lives around. And, but... My point here is that there's these were all selfless reasons, and yet so often you know the, the Latinos and immigrants are, are portrayed as this sort of parasitic class, and I just there was just something about that that bothered me. Mm-hmm. And then one father, uh, the father of one Marine, put it in one phrase really succinctly. He said, "You know, on one end of campus they're recruiting the kids to fight and die, and on the other they're kicking the parents out of the country." And I just it just sort of set something off inside me. I said, "You know, there's a story there." And so I wanted to write about a family. I got to know a Salvadoran family very closely in the writing of my last book. And I knew what they went through. I knew how frightened they could be. And I just, I wanted to honor that. And I wanted to show how, you know, not, not I didn't make them innocent because nobody's innocent. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, in fact, some people may find fault with me for actually making my characters um, not more innocent or, or benign or angelic, but I just don't see people that way. This is a very human family, and I just wanted to show what happens to a family like this when they're faced with this kind of crisis. And the problem is, of course, like, like you said, the repercussions just keep going further and further away mm-hmm. into um, when you realize that immigration now is pretty much, you know, immigrants coming across the border are at the thrall of organized crime in mm-hmm. Mexico and Central America, when you realize that, the, that organized crime and terrorism are two sides of a similar phenomena and that federal law enforcement sees it that way. And, uh, they they, like to, they'd love to have the two together. In fact, that's part of the— Well, they, they basically do—there uh, are, are elements within law enforcement that do see them as two sides of the same right. coin. And I, I actually I try to point out that there are other elements that don't. And that uh, there, there are links, but they aren't what people fear. For example, the whole notion that um, Mara Salvatrucha or the cartels would bring terrorists into this country is kind of far-fetched. Well, terrorists from the Middle from East. From the Middle East, yes. right. And it just, uh, it, it, it's not in their interest, and it's not in the terrorist organization's interest to get involved with organized crime at that kind of level because they'd make them too vulnerable and it would mm-hmm. expose them in too many different ways. It's far easier to get across the Canadian border anyway. As one of the members... Uh, People in your book says, "Well, we have no problem with uh, you know the the law people going after all those terrorists because it takes the pressure off of us." Oh, exactly. Well, they yeah. actually say, "Yeah, well, the criminals themselves." Yes, actually says, "Yeah, you know, truth matter is a terrorist act does you know does us great. It takes law enforcement away from the crime effort, and you know when people get uh, upset, they want to get high. So mm-hmm. you know it's a win-win for us." Well, it's interesting. You meant you used the word uh, parasitic class, and you were talking about you know Latinos, but there's a definite distinction. And Uncle Tino, who before he went down to El Salvador, Roque knew really very little about, but he hears the story of how he had escaped after working, you know, as a, a, a militant against the government and having to hide in the hills and then being you know literally burned out by by bombs dropped with uh, phosphorus in it. Right. And um, a story that uh, that Roque had never heard before. Right. Well, his uncle, there's, if, if you meet people from El Salvador, um, 
you sometimes almost have to pry the stories out of them because they're very stoic people. And they believe, you know, very much in, you know, yes, the past was hard, but, you know, it, tomorrow, today doesn't get any easier by, you know, by grinding over that mm-hmm. over and over mm-hmm. again. So um, they can be incredibly optimistic and, and it has and a lot to do with their work at the and, same time. At the same time. Yeah. But, but I've, I've found them to be basically cheery, basically giving basically generous people and very hardworking. And so Faustino has always felt, well, you know, I just don't really need to share this with anyone. And it also, it's, it is an episode of total heartbreak for him. Mm-hmm. But one night, there he is looking at Guasapa Volcano, which is where his wife died. Mm-hmm. And that's the reason that he fled. Right. I mean, he ultimately left right. El Salvador with his son, Happy. And one night, you know, he's, he's just he becomes wistful, and Roque has been playing, you know, the old rancheras and the old ballads on the guitar, and it has touched the man's heart. And in particular, he's been playing T.L. Faustino's favorite song, which is Sin Ti, which mm-hmm. means without you. Right. And Faustino opens his heart, and it's a seminal moment for Roque, mm-hmm. where he realizes how much this man, who he's always just sort of, you know, seen as his uncle, the truck driver, how much this man has been through, how much he has suffered, and how much... He has, in particular, sacrificed for Roque himself. Right. And Roque, you know, it, it, it's the beginning of the sense of obligation to family that really begins to flower in his heart. Well, one of the other things, and this is important, and I don't want to try to get, we're at the point where I'm afraid I'm going to give too much of the book away. But one of the fascinating parts, I, I thought, was that the aunt and uncle and the, the boys are living in a trailer, a single wide, in this dumpy trailer park. And the reason they're there is because the Mexicans came in and de- made a deal, which basically where they were going to refinance their home and ended up losing it because of the paperwork and the interest on the interest, et cetera, et cetera. Well, th- th- this goes to there's a there's a very interesting tension between Mexicans and Salvadorans, right? And um, and I and I use this in the book and the fact that there was a, a Mexican mortgage broker who said, "Look, you know, we we've got a really good, you know, we've got a really good mortgage thing, and we can work it out for you and everything." And what they didn't realize that it was in the paperwork, um, they thought they were getting a deal on the down payment. What they were doing is they were just inheriting another loan at a very steep interest rate that right. they didn't understand, and they realized they. But that signed, wasn't. They didn't have to pay for the first two months, and then it kicked in. And then it kicked in, and um, and they said, uh, you know, they 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 hadn't realized it. But they realized now they owed it, they'd signed it, and they tried to honor it. Mm-hmm. But then there's a balloon payment at the end of three years, and that they, they couldn't possibly meet, and uh, they lose their house. And Happy goes to work for a gang that – and this is another fascinating thing. is I, You know, you, I always in my mind – I mean, you pigeonhole things. You see things on TV. Gangs are into drugs, right? That's all yeah. they're into. They're not the ones who are doing these – what I would used to think of as traveler scams. You, the travelers you know, out of Arkansas who would come and repair a roof or a driveway and then they'd drive away and it would wash away when the rains came. Oh, right. Or uh, they'd have a trucking company and they'd put everything on the truck and then wouldn't let it go because all of a sudden you need another 1000 or $2,000 to pay for the, yeah, the unloading mo- charge. Yeah, the yeah. moving scam. Yeah, so they use the moving scam in here. It's the Americana Amigos Moving Company. Right. And you tell about how – Happy is there, you know, waiting on the truck while these, you know, this pregnant woman and her husband are being shaken down essentially for another $3,000. And he goes back afterwards. And there in the corner of the room of these multiple moving companies, all with different names to stay away ahead of the cops and the Better Business Bureau, is this pamphlet on exactly the same mortgage scam that his uncle got involved with. Right. 
So, and he suspects that probably the people that he's having to work with were part of the scam that took away his family's house. Yeah. And he just figures that, okay, revenge is going to have to wait because yeah. I need to use them for now. Uh, see, that's your weaving again. <laughs> that's my what? You're weaving. Yeah. You're, well. inter, you know, you're cross-connected. But, it, but in these, I, there's all kinds of stuff in here. Like I didn't know that the Palestinians were a major group in – in El Salvador and Honduras until I read this in your book. In Absolutely, fact, yeah. Both of the uh, presidential candidates the last two times were Palestinians. In Christian. 2004, they yeah. were both Palestinian, yeah. both on the right and the left. Yeah. And um, that was because in the Ottoman Empire, the uh, the I mean, at the beginning of World War One, the Ottoman Empire was recruiting young men throughout the Levant. And you had in Lebanon, in Palestine, in Syria, and in Jordan, uh, families just packed up their sons and said, we're going to send you as far away as we can think. And there was already a, a fledgling merchant class, uh, Arabic merchant class mm-hmm. in Latin America. And it grew quite a bit at this particular time. And um, there's, a, I think, approximately somewhere like between 100 and 200,000 Palestinians in El Salvador. And... Um, and they're very much part of the merchant class there. Just a fascinating book. I'm going to stop telling more and more pot pieces here and not have you read anymore. Just is there something you want to share with? I we do. have a lot of people who listen to us who are who want to be a writer. Ah. So tell us how this came to be for you. I mean the writing life? Yes. I knew I uh, I had been a musician when I was in college. And I had written short stories, and I studied acting when I came out. I really didn't know what I wanted to do artistically, but I knew I wanted to do something. And um, I was in acting school in my late 20s, uh, working for a law firm to make money. And two people I was in acting class with knew of my interest in writing stories and perhaps pursuing writing instead of acting. And they were working for this private eye firm in San Francisco. And they said, well, if you want to be a writer, you should get a job here because you can't beat this place for material. And that proved to be an understatement. Um, I found out later that I was the most persistent applicant the firm had ever had. I bugged them for nine straight months until they hired me. And then I worked there for 15 years. It mm-hmm. was um, – <clears throat> I didn't expect to enjoy the job as much as I did, but it just – it fed me in a way that um, – I'd, I'd wanted to be a lawyer when I was in high school and then sort of gave that up. And uh, this served my – the intellectual side of it is you're, you're basically like a lawyer on the street. You know, your, your job is to find people, to find out what they know, to get them to talk to you. Do depositions and stuff like no, that? No, you don't do depositions. You do interviews. You uh-huh. sit there and just talk okay. to them. And you, you – what we used to call unpack the witness. You find out everything they could possibly know because you never know if you're going to get a chance to talk to them again because they may decide they don't want to talk. You, you, you have one moment where they're acceptable. Mm-hmm. They sit there and, and they're willing to open up to you. So I did that. And I, and I have to admit, I, um, if I were to advise young writers today, I'd say, you know, go out and do something adventurous with your life. And, um, you know, don't go to, don't go to a, a writing program right away. Um, live your life in some way. See what people do. You know, find, talk to people. Become engaged in some meaningful way in the world. It will give you a perspective that will feed your writing in ways that will, you know, outlive anything that you might learn in a graduate writing program. I'm not saying that you don't need to learn your craft. You mm-hmm. do. Mm-hmm. Um, listen as well. I could, that was an important part of your experience. Too. Oh, no, absolutely. Yeah. Um, no, you have to just sit there and be quiet and let people tell you what, you know, what has happened. Mm-hmm. And, and you'll find that people do really want to tell you their stories, and everybody's got one. And, um, and to be open to that. I think that's the most important lesson I ever learned about writing or life, period. Well, the book with everybody with the stories that you will not want to put down is called Do They Know I'm Running? It's by David Corbett. Thank you, David, 
for spending this time with us. Well, thank you, Gil. You have been listening to Word by Word Conversations with the writers on North Bay Public Media, KRCB-FM. We had a great conversation with private eye turned novelist David Corbett about his excitingly complex thriller, Do They Know I'm Running?, a book that has become even more important with the recent changes in the DACA program and other proposals for immigration reform. As you can tell, David has become a mentor to other writers and will be teaching classes on creating characters at the Writer's Digest Novel Writing Convention in Pasadena, Saturday, October 28th. Or you can pick up a copy of David's excellent book, The Art of Character, Creating Memorable Characters for Fiction, Film, and TV. Our studio engineers for today's broadcast are Mark Fuller and Anthony Garcia. Our station manager is Sean Knight. Our radio coordinator is Wendy Nicholson. Our podcast archivist is Mark Prell. Our theme music is by Bill Conti. Anthony Garcia provided the voice of the rancher in the opening excerpt from David Corbett's Don't You Know I'm Running, and I'm your host and narrator, Gil Manser. We invite you to tune to the next word-by-word broadcast from 4 to 5 on Sunday afternoon, October 8th. Until then, we want to share a letter David Corbett received from a nurse named Melody Malolani. It's always nice to get a great review. It's always nice to be touted by other writers. It's always nice to be respected, and it's always wonderful when people buy your books. But every now and then, it really gets down to something as simple as this. And I got this email from a nurse named Melody Malolani, and she just wrote me out of the blue through my website. And she said... Which, by the way, you should mention. Oh, my website is davidcorbett.com. Thank you. Thank you. I have just finished Do They Know I'm Running, and I'm feeling something like shock. I can't begin to thank you enough for giving a voice to those who don't have one, for telling their story and giving them a face and a heart. I work with the Latino community and have spent a little time in Nicaragua, a little more in Guatemala. I have seen enormous courage and strength in the face of abject poverty and abuse. What impressed me most on my first trip to Guatemala, and each time I went, was the lack of bitterness in the art and music and smiles, and the welcome they gave those of us from the U.S., though we all clearly knew the ugly history. On my first trip, I noticed babies wrapped in replicas of our flag. Turns out this was in honor of 9-11. What does that say about the heart of those people? When I first heard Mayan women pray, I felt like I was having an out-of-body experience. As the chants and replies increased, the wail started, I had a feeling that the voices were circling ever higher into the atmosphere, taking me with them. The energy was remarkable. I thought it was a fluke, but no, it happened each time, and now I find myself longing for it. I can't tell you how, ch- how much I cherish this letter. Mm. The fact that not only did the book touch her, but that she shared this story with me in return. It just... Uh, this is what writing is all about. Yes, and she may not know it, but she's a writer with that. Oh, that's that a, message. Isn't that an incredible? Yeah. Segment there. Yeah. That, that that description of the praying. I just, uh, I just found that incredibly moving. Right. Once again, thank you, David Corbett.